Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we take our small but favorite moments in movies and we explain uh, why they work so well and why they're great. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And today's episode, we're going to be going to the 1960s, a decade we haven't visited yet. So we're going to be looking at the latter years of the 1960s, time of revolution. Yes, I was very excited to talk about this, given a lot of my uh, PhD research is uh, set at this time frame. Don't expect that to be reflected in my discussion today. I'm really not <laughs> thinking of this as like PhD time. Uh, I'm just here for, for to have some fun. But uh, it's, it's an era that I've thought about a lot, and it's a lot of the films made at this time are among my favorites. I don't know about you, but... I found a few that... I, I, there's a lot of movies here I respect more than more than love. I would say, uh, I did pick a few that I do love though. It, it's a, it is an interesting time for movies. It's almost like 1967 specifically is almost like a turning point for films, right? And maybe that's mm-hmm. your thesis. <laughs> maybe I'm digging into that. A little that's bit, the year but, that I'm looking at. Yeah. 1967. It really does seem like a like a absolutely a banner year definitely one of the more important in film history yeah if you look through the 60s you can see the sort of steps toward where things were going the sort of early rumblings of new hollywood uh in terms of uh gradually more adult content in films more european and uh generally foreign language influences on filmmaking form and style. There's those glimmers all throughout, but 67 is the year where it really catalyzes, really around uh, Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate. Those are the big two. There are some other texts we can look at as also essential to that period. But if you had to put two, those are the two. For sure. So one of which may or may not be discussed today by us. (laughs) That's correct. Uh, Okay, so let's dig into the 60s. Um, Right on. Do you want to start? Do you want me to start? Uh, I can start. I'll start with, uh, you know, you you mentioned <clears throat> revolution being on the mind. So I'll start with one of the most famous Hollywood revolutionary texts, Easy Rider. Um, the moment I've chosen is a bit of a cheat because I think in some ways you could argue it's actually a very big moment or at least one of the most uh, important and essential to my mind of the film. But I really wanted to talk about it, so... I don't know, you can tell me if I broke the rules of our show or not after. Um, So Easy Rider, for anyone who hasn't seen it, is a story of two uh, motorcyclists slash drug dealers who ride through America. Ostensibly, it's sold as, you know, this road trip movie. They went to find America and couldn't find it anywhere. They're also going to sell cocaine so they can make a big score and go, you know, uh, live as in comfort for the rest of their lives. So a lot of the film is just kind of relatively plotless, aimless stuff roaming through uh, these rural American roads and towns and sort of environments. A lot of the dialogue between the characters, while potentially interesting, is somewhat inane. A lot of it is drug-fueled nonsense, drug-fueled by both the characters and the actors and the filmmakers. (laughs) Uh, It seemed like a pretty loose set and filming environment. But there's one scene where, in the midst of a lot of these conversations, things get really profound and um, quite thoughtful. And it's the scene where Jack Nicholson's character gives a little speech about freedom to uh, Billy, the character played by Dennis Hopper. 
So I'm going to recite some of the dialogue. So they're talking generally about why people like Billy and Wyatt, these you know long-haired hippie types driving around on their motorcycles, are so hated. And George says, they're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent. George being the Jack Nicholson character. Hopper responds, uh, you know, we just represent someone who needs a haircut. And Nicholson presses, what you represent to them is freedom. Hopper, what the hell is wrong with freedom? That's what it's all about. And then we get this brilliant little speech from Nicholson, who responds to that comment about freedom being what it's all about by saying, Oh yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you're bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. Oh yeah, they're going to talk to you, and talk to you, and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual, it's going to scare them. And Hopper responds, well, it don't make him running scared. And Nicholson responds, no, it makes him dangerous. So, I love the speech. I think on the simplest level, it's an amazing piece of dialogue. Um, the screenplay is credited to Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Terry Southern, who is probably most known at this point for being the one of the screenwriters on uh, Dr. Strangelove. This, to me, feels very much like his writing. Um... It stands out, certainly, from a lot of the rest of the dialogue. I think, in general, it's a brilliant piece of writing about... That really captures, in a way, what it means to be free in a country that is so uh, defined by individual rights and individual freedoms, and really picks at what that really looks like. How free can you really be when your lives are dictated by a marketplace? The answer, of course, is not much of it all, and as much as... People like to believe themselves as free and get very defensive when they feel like they're not. Any time, and you can project almost any identity into this, that has been deemed as outside of the cultural norm and would we could say free from it has been met with hatred and hostility. So there's a lot of really poignant, nuanced thought to it. And I think it's brilliantly delivered by Nicholson, who elsewhere in the film I find is a little bit loose, partly because he's a New Yorker playing like a Southern lawyer which is a weird piece of casting, but this speech he feels just completely right. Uh, and the other reason I really love it is because of where it sits in the film, in that most of the dialogue is not this good. Most of the dialogue is not this thoughtful, this poetic, this sharp in how much it captures um, the conflicts that the film is really about. A lot of the dialogue is kind of nonsensical ramblings about UFO men. Uh, and, like, right after this, Nicholson starts doing this weird tick that he does at the beginning when he drinks some alcohol that's just kind of this loud, obnoxious thing. So they kind of end up laughing it off. And I love the way that it just, the movie sneaks in this really profound observation about American culture in the midst of, of drug-fueled nonsense. And I think it's a lot more honest to talking to people under the influence, as it were, or being in the state of mind yourself, where there's the occasional pearls of wisdom. Most of what you're saying is not that, though. But when you do, those kind of moments are almost all the more insightful because they are so singular. So, Right. As much as you might think everything you say when, especially when you're a teenager in these moments, and you're like, oh, <laughs> look at these deep thoughts I have. But this is actually legitimate uh, deep thought. Like he does a really good job of getting to the core, I think, of what the movie is going for. Mm -hmm. Right. So that, that message of freedom is... <clears throat> You know, it's it's that idea of scaring people into the idea that they're not as free as I think. 
And that seems to be what Dennis Hopper and company were setting out to do in general with Easy Rider. Mm-hmm. It's too bad that that's that message is so restricted to 1969 is in no way applicable to society today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Naturally. And that's the other thing that really sticks out too, is like, cause a lot of films from the late 1960s have this attitude of rebellion and revolution. But if you start to really pick at them, how revolutionary are they in terms of what they're advocating or what they believe? And it's debatable in a lot of cases. And some are actually a lot less radical than they might appear on the surface and some i think that's the point like the graduate for example not that i don't think we'll talk about it in too much depth today but i think part of what makes that film brilliant is that it very much isn't a film about a revolutionary person it's about just kind of a bored alienated young man who's sort of grasping at um that type of language and attitude to fulfill him but doesn't really have any convictions and doesn't have any real stern beliefs and ends up just becoming like his parents that's kind of the point that's what makes that film i think really compelling but this film you actually do have dialogue which gestures toward on some level a pragmatic and social criticism about uh the ways in which society is organized particularly with that line uh it's real hard to be free when you're bought and sold in a marketplace the idea that it really it's it doesn't come straight out and saying capitalism means we're never free but that's basically the substance of the argument that's being made here and that's pretty bold for certainly by today's standards where you know you're not really getting those times of arguments in major american movies but even in 1967 for a film to gesture that closely towards a potentially socialist argument is pretty remarkable in 1969 sorry when the film's released so um yeah Yeah, great scene great scene and it's definitely punctuated by what happens next but we won't go into that but good point yeah Yeah. it it does kind of solidify what he's saying a little bit have you seen easy rider relatively recently because i feel like this is one of those movies that when we've talked about going through the afi list to go through it and not fully taking like that i saw easy rider for the first time when i was like 14 or 15 and it was a lot to take in at that age (laughs) no i haven't seen it in quite some i don't remember the last time i would have well how about you have you seen it recently i rewatched it recently going through the criterion bbs box set and it's an interesting watch uh, by contemporary standards. In some ways, I don't love it as much as like some of the other late 60s movies we're going to talk about, but it was interesting to remind myself just how beautifully made it is on a technical level. Like It's a gorgeous-looking movie. I think the cinematography was Laszlo Kovacs, and the soundtrack lives up to its reputation. There's some really... I mean, the music itself is fantastic, but it's really well-utilized. So um, holds up. That's Very cool. much worth a look. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Uh, good moment. I that was that's one of Jack Nicholson's first actual roles, isn't it? Like he didn't really do a whole lot before mm-hmm. that, if I remember. Yeah, correctly. like he had, like he he did <clears throat> stuff like Roger Corman's The Terror, I think it's called. Like he had little parts like right. that, but this was his first, I think, substantive role. Uh, he'd written the BBS movie, co-wrote the BBS movie Head, the Monkeys movie. And he has a small cameo in that. But this was the first. This was certainly the first that got him noticed. I think he got an Oscar nomination for uh, this movie. And, and then the next year he made Five Easy Pieces, which yeah. was even bigger for him. And this speech probably had a lot to do with that, too, I would think. This I think so. Moment. Yeah. He's very watchable in the film. Obviously, he's Jack Nicholson. He has, like, I think you could pretty credibly argue there are some actors who are maybe better. 
but I don't know if any actor is quite as entertaining on screen as Jack Nicholson. So even when he's not perfectly suited to the role, as I don't think he is in this, I'm so drawn to watching him. But yeah, this speech is just... And even the way he plays it, like, as in other parts of the film, he seems a bit more wild and a bit more just kind of, you know, not that thoughtful or that wise. But in this moment, he just feels like he he's so confident in knowing what he's talking about and the right. way that he so calmly answers everything opera says, especially that end bit about, you know, it makes them dangerous. It's yeah. so just assured and well-delivered. Oh, great moment. Alrighty. Okay. Off to you. So hippies are known for having really long hair, and uh, I'm going to go to a movie that has lots of fur. <laughs> so we're going to go to 1968's Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. And the moment we're going to talk about is when Dr. Zaius scratches out a word in the dirt. And the reason I want to talk about this moment is mostly because I want to talk about Dr. Zaius and <laughs> just how great of a villain I think that he is. So in the movie, of course, uh, Charlton Heston is finds himself stranded on a planet where it's backwards, where the apes are, are the civilization. And... The humans are basically mute and wild animals to them. Of course, in in a ridiculous uh, movie convenience, Charlton Heston is shot in the throat. And so for the first half of the movie, he's not allowed to talk. So everybody thinks he's a regular human like every like all the other humans in the film. Um, but what he does try to do is he tries to talk through writing. And when he's outside in one of the big cages, they've got him in a big cage. He tries to write onto the sand basically i can write so that they know that he's intelligent and he's trying to communicate with them but of course when he's doing this the other apes are or the sorry the other humans are wiping them out and he gets in a big fight and that's kind of all that they pay attention to and nobody notices that he's trying to write to them and a bunch of it gets wiped gets wiped clean uh dr dr zaius meanwhile he's he's one of the the big head honchos in this ape society. And so he's talking to uh, Zero and Cornelius, who are kind of our hero apes who are on Taylor's side. And he's talking to them this whole time. And then eventually everybody kind of goes their own way. And then we get this little scene of Dr. Zaius looking down and seeing the remains of the word that Taylor wrote in the sand. And we just see him take a stick and scratch it out. And it's, it's such a great peek into this character's motivations and why he's such a good villain. Because he's, he's sort of like a, a stand-in for basically anybody in power that's trying to cover up the truth. And, you know, history buffs will think right away to like the Catholic Church in medieval Europe, right? Where they're suppressing ideas scientific ideas and philosophical ideas that don't match with their worldview and he very much um, has that that ideology to him where he knows that the truth that's is not widely known is does not fit with their society's views and so he does everything he can to cover it up uh, i actually did a a guest spot in another podcast not too long ago it's a, it was a book podcast uh, called, well, the, the podcast is The Legendarium, but the, the thing that I did is kind of like a fan offshoot of that. 
It's called the Legendary Green Team. And we did a little podcast just about villains. And most of them were book villains. But I kind of brought in the movie villain perspective, I guess. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was a good podcast. And I definitely talked about Dr. Zayas. And a lot of things that we came up with for villains, like what makes a good villain is the question that we we were trying to answer. And of course, one one thing that comes up quite a bit and didn't come up in this podcast is the idea of villain motivations. And I was mostly making the argument that a great villain comes from his relationship with the protagonist um, and whether that, that relationship is well established. I think Dr. Zayas hits both those points really well. You start to see, especially in this scene, what his motivation is, that he's trying to protect his own society uh, by covering up the truth about humans. And it also starts establishing a good relationship between him and Taylor, a very antagonist-protagonist relationship where Dr. Zayas is doing everything he can to keep Taylor down and to keep the truth about him being known. Um, and so it's a very personal relationship between the two of them. And I just, I just think he's one of the great movie villains. I know that's silly to say for somebody that's just like wearing a monkey suit the whole movie, but I just love <laughs> Dr. Zayas as a villain. I really do. Well, it's interesting. You, I never really thought of, I haven't seen Planet of the Apes in a long time, probably since like, I was 17 in high school and it was like a class I was taking. Oh my God. That's been a long time now, but uh, I don't really think of him off the top of my head as being one of the great movie villains, but you make a really good case for him uh, in terms of hurting the hero, building that relationship with the hero and that it is such a small moment. And that's, you know, really effective filmmaking that in such a simple gesture, it adds so much, uh, so much context to the relationship and to an audience's desire to watch Taylor overcome. Because the other thing I find that's so brilliant about that moment is how it's the kind of simple thing that, like, is almost more immediately grabbing to an audience than, like, some big evil act would be. Absolutely. Because it's so relatable of just, like, even on, like, the most simplistic levels of, like, times where maybe you got in trouble in your life because someone withheld information, like, even being, like, a little kid or something. And it's, like, it's just irritating. You're like, ugh. God damn, the dick. You just want to see that facade get pulled down so there can be some justice. Like, it's so, it's such a simple way to grab the audience. Um, and also a fun little piece of suspense and problem solving for the characters where, like, Taylor can't talk. Okay, how does he communicate? Oh, he tries to write a message in the sand. Oh, that gets thwarted. Right. Yeah. Um, you could all, almost even compare it to something like, uh, even something like Apollo 13 in a very different way where it's like watching a character's try to solve problems and then adapt when it doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a great moment. I like that you bring up the convenience of the throat injury though. <laughs> yeah, man, he couldn't, he could have broke a wrist or yeah. something. No, no, <laughs> but it was, it was kind of one of those necessary, uh, Mm -hmm. you got to go with. And what and I... it gives that great reveal later when he finally does speak, it's all the more powerful. It is, so, yeah. And one of the things I really like, actually, is by the end of the movie, he once the truth comes out that he's been covering up all this, and he kind of, well, he doesn't try to justify it because he doesn't feel he needs to justify it. He just knows exactly why he's doing it. And you, you kind of get it, right? Like, he's basically saying, I, I know mankind's history, and I know how destructive they are and i do not want our society to become like that and so his motivations are relatable in a sense 
uh, but he's still doing it in a distrustful manner, right? And so it, when you talk about um, like distrust of government and stuff, this is absolutely rooted in that. And so do the ends justify the mean is the big question. Um, I would say no, which is why what makes some of these great villains great is that you know the end that goal that they're going for sometimes work but the means that they take to get to that end are what makes them villainous and i would say that's definitely the case here Mm -hmm. yeah it gives a good shade to him as a character where his motivations are not just relatable but specific where you get why this character has this drive which makes him much more fun to watch as an antagonist right um i don't i haven't seen any of the sequels other than like the newer remake movies um both the Tim Burton one and the good ones. But uh, does Dr. Zaya show up in the subsequent films? Uh, he is in the second movie. Um, okay. But the second movie is basically a remake. <laughs> like, okay. it's not. And then it goes until, until it gets to a point where it goes off the rails and does something really weird. Um, hmm. But it's it's not even half as compelling as the first movie. <laughs> it's pretty okay. boring. <laughs> They're all on Disney Plus now, and I've been kind of meaning to. I've been meaning to rewatch the first one for ages. So yeah, the first one is a stone cold classic in my in my eyes. But mm-hmm. yeah, the second and th- the third one's weird because it actually goes to modern times again. Hmm. <laughs> and, and then uh, and then it, the fourth and fifth one are like cheesy, but in an interesting way. So yeah, cool, yeah. great pick. Um, do you have anything else to say on it before we jump into the next? No, I'm good. Alrighty. Well, my next pick also comes from 1968. Once Upon a Time in the West. Sergio Leone's, in my opinion, greatest movie. Uh, I've talked about it a decent amount on YouTube, but I've never talked about this scene, so this is something new. Uh, I'm choosing Morton's death scene. So for anyone who hasn't seen the film or maybe isn't as super familiar with it, memory's a little shaky, Morton is the rich businessman who is trying to expand his railroad and spends most of the film in his train car behind a desk, sort of physically weak. We see he's, you know, has a disease and he's largely dependent on others and uh, his equipment to get around, but very powerful. And the moment I'm choosing is his death scene where that is shattered. Part of what I love about the scene is that we don't actually see the action, we just see the aftermath. Uh, Henry Fonda's villain, I realize I'm talking about two different Fondas this week, that's kind of neat. Um... <laughs> Henry Fonda's villain, Frank, rides in to the station, or rather to the train, which is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And it's very small. It's only like a couple of cars. And we see that all of these men are laid out dead. And there's an amazing shot where we're outside and we see Frank go in the train and there's this lateral tracking shot that moves along the train car, presumably as Frank's going through it, but we don't actually see him. We're just seeing the rows and rows of bodies outside. And he goes through and he's look, and then we get to the final car where, uh, Morton usually sits, and he's not there. We go outside with Frank. He looks over, and there's Morton lying in the dirt with water running off from a pipe, presumably from the train, I think, but maybe not. So i got to move my cat from from doing something. Um, Dying in the dirt and mud. So there's a lot of different reasons I love this scene. One is that I really love the irony that for all this character's power and all they've done to... um, hoard their power and sort of impose their will on others through capital that doesn't stop them from dying horribly in the mud. They're not any better than any of the rest of us. 
Um, but the other reason I find this scene really affecting is that it's a surprisingly sorrowful and dignified scene for a character who has otherwise been a fairly grotesque and cruel villain throughout the story. Um, the score that's played here, which is named after the character Morton, is maybe my favorite piece of movie score ever written. It's this really beautiful, simple, haunting piece. And there's no dialogue in the scene. We watch as Frank looks on and Morton and he exchange some glances. Frank reaches for water and then just dies. And there's a lot of poetry in it where we learn that Morton's goal in the story uh, is basically to build a railroad from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And he talks about wanting to see the Pacific. And in his office, there's even this painting of the Pacific Ocean. And the closest he gets is this just pile of mud in the desert. And there's something... There's so much dignity and and uh, weight that Leone gives this moment, which I think is significant given so much of his filmography, so much of his westerns. Life is cheap. Characters die, and they there's no. It, it's 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 spectacle. It's fun. It's exciting. And this film throughout treats death with a lot more weight to the point that even a character like this, who is this, in some ways really reprehensible person, is given this really weighty send off. And it's a scene that I've never really shaken, despite how many times I've seen the film. So uh, that's my number two pick for the late 60s. Yeah, good pick. What The one thing that kind of jumps out to me is the idea of his goal to see the Pacific and how that was unrealized, right? So I'm like, I'm wondering, <clears throat> is Leon making some sort of a cynical statement about, um, you know, the American dream that was so so prominent during that time and um how fragile that idea is what do you think i think there's something to that i mean it's worth noting that the real catalyst for the story is when morton has um this well this one sec there's a guy who owns like this irish immigrant actually owns this plot of land that ends up being really valuable and he is trying to hold out or he's going to build his own train station there because he realizes what he can build and morton basically tries to run him off the land so he can have it for himself and that's when he sends in frank who murders his family and kills a child which is a great way to introduce a villain is shooting a little blonde haired boy um but uh so there is already this theme of like the American dream is a lie. Like here you have a character who should embody that ideal. He's an immigrant. Right. He's coming to this country. He's going to make good. He has all the resources to do it, except no, he isn't because a more powerful corporation is just going to crush him and take that spot over. And the there's real even... America. Exactly. And I like too with, with Morton dying is it goes, there's a certain wisdom in the film where it's not the one bad capitalist man. Who's the reason things are, bad here it's bigger than him it destroys him too right this dream of expansion and and industry is bigger than any one person and bulldozes all of them on that way um and yeah i think it's absolutely meant to be a sort of poetic irony awesome that, so yeah and i like what you said about the score too because i always kind of saw once upon a time the west as like he started with the score and then built the movie mm -hmm. around it like i really feel like that in this in this it's sense. basically true i mean yeah. they shot the music was written before the film was shot so they shot to a lot of the music um which is probably why it's like the perfect marriage of image and sound right um yeah the score is really i mean in a lot of leone films the score is the driving factor because ennio marconi was quite good at the whole writing music for movies thing yeah, but this bad. one in particular yeah he's okay <laughs> um 
I was actually thinking about this. I think cause people talk about John Williams and Spielberg, Bernard Herrmann and Hitchcock, like the great composer-director combos. I think this one's the best. I, li- I cannot imagine Sergio Leone's films with anybody else's music. But we know Spielberg and, and Hitchcock can do movies with other composers. Right. Like, Good, Bad, and the Ugly theme is probably the most recognizable movie theme ever. Like, mm-hmm. I think it beats Jaws and I think it beats Psycho. So yeah, I think you're on the money there. We owe that to Metallica playing at the beginning <laughs> of all their concerts. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's a fantastic little scene. And I also love, uh, unlike the last scene I cited, which was like this big speech, no dialogue here. It's all just music and some sound effects. Mm. Awesome. Well, great scene. Yeah. Thank you. Off to you. <clears throat> okay. Uh, let's go to 1967, the year that we've, that we mentioned is kind of the turning year. And one thing that I noticed with that year is that a lot of like social message movies were also coming out at that time too. And I want to talk about one of those, which is guess who's coming to dinner, which is a story where, uh, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn are playing a couple as they were in real life. And their daughter is. Not officially they weren't. That's technically all rumors. Oh, okay. He was married <laughs> to someone not named Catherine Hepburn. Okay, well, we won't. But yeah, it was like the most open secret in the history yeah. of open secrets. <laughs> and so uh, their daughter is has announced that she's she's getting married to Sidney Poitier. And so it's a an interracial marriage and um, and how they deal with that at the time. And so the movie is basically these two parents coming to terms with that and and accepting it. And the moment I want to talk about is when Catherine Hepburn, what is her character's name again? Christina? Yeah, Christina is her friend from her work. She works at an art gallery or something. And her friend from work comes over and and meets meets Sidney Poitier's character and, and... asks them lots of questions and stuff. And then when her and Catherine Hepburn are alone, they're, you know, she's like, Oh, I, I feel so bad for you. I'm so sorry for you. And is basically treating this like it's a absolute disaster for the family. It's just a social faux pas that they'll never live, live down. And so Catherine Hepburn's, you know, playing along with this all the way, walks her to the car, tells her, gets in the car. And then she says, Okay, I'd like you to do something for me. And she's like, when you get to the art gallery, and she's saying, I want you to make out a check to $500 for yourself. I want you to remove anything that reminds me that you were ever there or that I ever knew you. Goodbye. (laughs) And then then sends her off in the car without even giving her a chance to respond. Uh, And this, it's an interesting moment because it's, this uh, Hillary character is very um, Helen Lovejoy-ish, right? Like she... They they basically mentioned that she came to the house for on biz on a business that was not really necessary, you know, just to to get the latest the gossip of what's happening, and um, and just the way that Catherine Hepburn's character deals with it is it's interesting. It's very bold, and I think this is the point in the film where she's making her stand that she is 100% behind her daughter. And I'd say the rest of the, the movie is Spencer Tracy coming to that realization as well. But I think at this point, she 
she's there and she's on on her daughter's side unequivocally and she is not going to be put up with any of the bs that her social elite friends are going to are going to send her way i think but it does add a lot of questions about you know if you're at a time like this, right, and it's hard for us to really understand the mindset necessarily of somebody seeing this movie in 1967. I just don't think we can get our heads around that. So we can only kind of view it from our own modern perspective. But if you're if you're trying to do that, I, I would say it's it's um you know equivalent to all all the issues that we have these days where we have um like the gay community is is fighting for the same equalities and trans people are fighting for the same equalities. And so how do you deal with somebody who's just not ready to, to accept that, right? And in this case, the way she's dealing with it is cutting her out of her life completely. And whether this is the right attitude or the wrong attitude, I don't know. But I think that it's interesting that... Um, that we can take this movie from 1967, apply whatever is happening in our modern times to it. And we, I mean, we can debate, is she doing the right thing or should she be trying to um, change her worldview, change her mindset by bringing her in a little bit more? I don't know, but I think it's an interesting debate to have. And I think this movie supplies that. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting scene from to view from that perspective in terms of like the social consciousness of the film and it's like all all over the film stanley kramer is famous for being a filmmaker who was not particularly um not particularly good at say visualizing a scene or a story or having a lot of uh sort of grace and elegance in his filmmaking he was known for like issue movies um most of which are fairly entertaining to some degree or another. This is probably one of the more entertaining ones, but um, they were very blunt and in your face about dealing with uh, various social issues in this case, uh, racism from a very particular white liberal point of view. And it's very much in the scene where it's, you know, the main conflict of the story or the characters who hold the most narrative agency are not, you know, the young black man or the young white woman, even it's the old, rich white people who Stanley Kramer no doubt identifies with the most. Um, And I do think while this scene is, it's very gratifying to watch and Catherine Hepburn is like rather perfect for this kind of shutdown. Um, There's almost a screwball comedy to the way she just rattles off the dialogue so beautifully. But the scene is also very much about giving, I think the presumed white audience, the, sort of vicarious fantasy of being able to tell off an obvious racist that if they had a friend who said something that the audience would also have the courage to tell them where to stick it and send them away and that is kind of i think wishful thinking i think that the real response most people like christina would have to this type of social interaction would be sort of quiet indifference and then maybe talking about it later and i can say like in I'm willing to bet that a lot of people who have had friends who said whether it be racist comments or transphobic or homophobic comments, sometimes you might have the courage to challenge them, but often it's so much easier to just kind of mouse up and be like, "Mm," and then change the subject and get away from it. And I think that's 
kind of the more realistic thing. Like it's a, you know, it's inspiring to watch her do this, but it is to me a largely wish fulfillment kind of fantasy. I don't think it's all that reflective of um, actual uh, social interactions of people like this. That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, and I also think it's interesting, especially in an age where I really feel like discourse around around issues is kind of is is getting to become so polarizing uh and this i think is an example where she's taking a pretty extreme action to cut somebody out of her life completely based on um based on this one interaction and of course maybe you know maybe this is we don't know the relationship of these characters that well but um it does bother me a little bit just because i see so much it's you or us mentality, which I think in some cases it has to be that. Um, especially when you're talking about blatant racism. But I think in other cases, discourse is important to try to, I, I don't know, bring people to your side is the right, is the right uh, idea. But I think we need to meet in the middle a little bit more. And so mm-hmm. that's why I struggle with this scene a little bit. I do think I do think it's entertaining and I think that what you said about the wish fulfillment is is spot on right like um, seeing somebody go after her like this is you know Catherine Hepburn sells it pretty well like she's Mm -hmm. she's such a performer that you just follow along with her and then you're like you're like yeah take that and then you're then (laughs) and then you think about it for a second you're like was that too harsh I don't know like it but it does make you think. And I think the other part of that, too, is that um, it's very deliberately structured that the characters who are the most outright racist are the ones outside the family. Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, like, they make it very clear, the filmmakers, from very early on, they don't care that he's black. They're just worried about what it's going to mean for their future. So it's a way to sidestep the issue in a way. You don't actually have to directly face the audience with uh, their own potential uh, latent or perhaps overt feelings of racism because you immediately set, uh, situate this uh, drama as like, well, it's more about can the world accept them? What are their futures going to be like? They don't need to dwell on that. So you get to have these scenes where a racist person gets told off and it's very simplistic. It's just like, you know, they're sent away and that feels good and there's a place for it. But yeah, it it very much avoids having to actually do the work of um grappling with the complexities of racism and how and the film does set up that false dichotomy of like there's the good people who are not racist and the bad people who are racist uh there's some nuance to it uh certainly we can talk if we wanted to we could really get into the depictions of uh black characters in the film particularly i think a lot about Sidney poitier's line where he tells his father you think of yourself as a colored man and i think of myself just as a man and it's like oh this does not feel like anything a black writer would write but you know so there there are some at least attempts at like more nuanced and uh interesting conflicts but for the most part the film is very eager to just set up antagonists and feel good about calling them out as being wrong right and there's a certain bravery to that i think it's easy for you mentioned it's hard to wrap one's head around seeing this in 1967 
Although it was worth noting, a lot of critics at the time did call the film out for being quaint and simplistic and like way up behind the times. I mean, they called a lot of critics called out in the heat of the night for being that, which in the heat of the night has its problems, but it's Malcolm X compared to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Um, so there was a criticism of that, but it's easy to forget Stanley Kramer did also receive death threats for for making movies like this, right. for making, you know, movies with positive representations of black Americans. So there is still a bravery to it, even if in some ways what it's actually doing is not at all bold or radical. Um, so yeah, I mean, to, to go to your original point about in this scene is, um, is she doing the right thing in terms of like just shutting a person out of her life when she should be starting discourse? I mean, looking, taking oneself out of the movie, I see that as a very deliberate choice in terms of how the film structures conflict. Um, but it does open up questions, as you say, putting oneself back into it in terms of like, what's one's responsibility? Because I think the other interesting side of that is if we use like a modern context, if we think about relatives or friends saying racist or harmful stuff on some level, from my perspective, I just don't want to play police all the time and Absolutely. I'll just cut them out. Yeah. I was talking about this with, a, with my mom <laughs> recently about how young people don't use Facebook as much anymore. And I think a lot of that is as older relatives started using it and start sharing their own political beliefs and other <laughs> beliefs. It's like, I don't want to have to have to correct my uncle that it's not okay to say these things every time I open. So I'll just go on Instagram or Snapchat where they're not there yet. Yeah. Um, so I think there is part of that where it's like, I think that's maybe the other part of that's appealing of the fantasy of Catherine Hepburn, just telling her to go away is I think we want to do that sometimes to people in our lives where it's like, I don't want to have this debate with you. I just want you to, you know, yeah. get lost. And practically, most of us can't just do that to, you know, certainly to coworkers or bosses, uh, but even relatives. So, right. No, I, don't anyway, know. I don't know if I actually answered your question. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think it's a question that has a particular answer, but I suppose it's true. It's, uh, anyway, there we go. So that's um, guess who's coming to dinner, and. What have we got next? Which I should probably rewatch actually, because I haven't seen that in a while either. I've watched parts of it for school. Like I even I TA'd um the intro to film course, I think I mentioned a couple times, and we watched the one year we watched Get Out, they also showed clips from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, because the film is kind of very overtly responding to that, not just in the obvious plot similarities, but also in even stuff like the set decoration and production design. So hmm. um, it's a film that I have a much firmer grasp on than Planet of the Apes by comparison, but it's probably been about as long since I've actually sat down and watched it from front to back. Interesting. So we're just going to end up watching each other's movies again, I think. I mean, you can't go wrong there. There's an interesting <laughs> batch. This would yeah. be an interesting, like, uh, I guess, what's what's more than a quintuple? Sixtuplet? Sex screening, yep. Sex tablet, yeah. A sex ted, yep. <laughs> this would be an interesting marathon, is the point I'm getting at. Um, so you said you picked 1967. I'm going to keep us there for another co-nominee for the best picture Oscar, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, which is the definitive late 60s movie in my opinion. It's not my favorite film made in this time period, but it is my favorite from 67 in particular. And I could have chosen a lot of different things from it because there's a lot to talk about. But I chose a scene that is very close to being a big moment, or is at least right after one, which is the movie theater scene, 
right after the first bank robbery, right after we see our first murder on camera in the film. And it's a big turning point where Bonnie Clyde and their getaway driver, C.W. Moss, are now sitting in a theater watching Gold Diggers of 1933. Having fully committed to crime and having crossed a line in murdering somebody. There's so much I love about this scene. It's a, it's only like a minute long, but there are so many layers that I think are worth unpacking. One is how the three participants react. Moss, the getaway driver, is just broken. He's this young kid. You get the impression that he's not particularly bright or um, ambitious. He's kind of easily pushed around and kind of just looking for affection and community. And he doesn't have any dialogue in this scene. He just sits in tears as... Uh, Clyde lambasts him for being responsible that you're in this with us it's a murder one rap for all of us now and it's your fault and blah 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 and he you can tell has never seen anything like this has gotten into this on a whim and is now completely just a shattered person uh Clyde is desperate and scrambling and I love that because of how it plays against Warren Beatty's uh bravado in the opening scene where he carries himself like this suave cool gangster who has this long history and here it's very clear like no he's never killed anybody uh, I don't know if the real Clyde had killed people by this point in his life I don't really care but within the universe of the film this is his first actual murder and it's messed him up he's clearly not prepared for this a lot of what he was putting on was performative and then you have Bonnie who is actually just enraptured with the screen and the movie and she eventually turns to Clyde and tells him and Moss to shut up and if they want to go talk they can go talk out in the lobby uh, which I love because it's such a departure from what you might expect the Bonnie and Clyde dynamic to be where you know like she needs to be brought along no she's fully on board she's in some ways more into this than Clyde and in part because in some ways Bonnie's fate is a lot worse than Clyde's where she not if she doesn't take this path like she lives in this small kind of dumpy town at the beginning and there's this waitress who waits on bonnie and clyde who clearly like the film makes it very clear this is this is what bonnie has to look forward to if she stays here you know marrying having kids working as a waitress dead end town no future no no way to fulfill her greater ambitions so in some ways as much as this costs she's all in she's willing to go there and the added irony of course is she didn't actually get her hands dirty she didn't shoot anybody so it's easier for her to be more nonchalant than Clyde, who has quite literally gotten his hands dirty. Um, and then, of course, they're watching uh, Gold Diggers in 1933, and the song is We're in the Money, which I think most people have heard at some point or another. It's this great early 30s anti-depression uh, jam about celebrating wealth and success and money, and there's even lines about we never see bread lines, so... The sort of contrast between their experience trying to escape poverty and these glamorous Hollywood images of, um, you know, wealth and exuberance. But the irony of that is if you've seen Gold Diggers of 1933, you know that for those performers, it's also an act. That they're actually all working class performers on the show struggling to put a production together. So while they're singing this and it's very exuberant, it's all kind of a lie too. Which is another subtle way of saying that this sort of those images of glory that they're aspiring to, especially Bonnie, they're a fugazi. They're not real. And I love the reflexivity of that. And I also love, because it would have been easy, the filmmakers are very open about being inspired by the French New Wave, but also old gangster films and all this stuff. It would have been very easy to have the movie theater scene be 
Little Caesar or the Public right. Enemy or the original Scarface, something that's more obvious. But I love that it's Gold Diggers of 1933. Like, no, that's the fantasy. <laughs> the fantasy is not we want to be gangsters and kill people. The fantasy is we want to be rich and beautiful. Right. And this is the path that gets us there. Yeah. So, yeah, love the scene. Love all the detail. Love the way the three actors play off each other. They all perfectly get what they need to do. It's magical. And that's my pick. Yeah, good breakdown. And you're never going to go wrong as a filmmaker putting a scene of your protagonist yelling at people in the movies to shut up because all movie fans get it <laughs> it's true at that point it's like i don't care how many people she kills <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's a you make a good point about about their motivations right and and how i like while well, scenes like this can can just show that all in kind of one go you get i love that you can pull out all three of your characters like traits and and everything about them that you need to at that point in the movie just from from that one scene mm-hmm. <clears throat> all their fates are in that one scene right yeah it's brilliant it's that economy of of screen rating right where you can mm-hmm. you can tell as much as you need the audience to know in as little as you can which is a good point too because i think with bonnie and clyde it's very easy to get and i'm guilty of this too certainly in the given that I've written about it a lot in like an academic context, so I kind of gravitate to that style. But it's easy to really focus on like, oh, it's importance for ushering in the new Hollywood and breaking away from conventions and helping destroy the production code. And like, yeah, all that's true. But it's also a really good movie. Yeah. Like really sharply written, bit well acted, exciting to watch. Like that's, that's what's made it so, uh, given it such longevity is that it really delivers as a great piece of hollywood storytelling right um and would it have made the impact that it had if if the filmmaking was less than what it is right like oh absolutely i think we have to remember that influential movies sometimes they're just influential because they try something different but most of the time they're great movies in and of themselves yeah you're right let's not forget that Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's also worth, I just saw relatively recently for the first time, um, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which is set in the same time period and was released the same year, and it's a Roger Corman-produced film. And man, it's fascinating to see the two of them side by side, because you really get like, wow, all the more why Bonnie and Clyde was impressive. Because other than the fact that it's in color, St. Valentine's Day Massacre looks like it could have been made in the 30s. Like, yeah. it's so old-fashioned. And then Bonnie and Clyde is like, just alive and rich in a way that it's like, yeah, okay. Like it's, it's one thing to read about its influence and its impact and even to see it in isolation. But when you really put sort of back to back, it's, oh yeah. Okay. I get it. Yeah. So, um, is this one you've watched relatively recently? Or is it another one that it's been a long time, long time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Again, we're going to, I'll just have to watch all your movies again. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. It holds up, man. Yeah. Gene Hackman, a young Gene Hackman, young Gene ha- looks exactly the same as he did in Unforgiven, you know, 20 years later, but technically a young Gene Hackman. Yeah. Yeah. He's never looked young. <laughs> no, it's like Ed Eisner. It's like you were born an old yeah. man or Ed Asner rather. Yeah. yeah. He was the old man in the Mary Tyler Moore show 30 years ago and he was the old man in Up. Yeah. Isn't that like- the truth? Oh man. <laughs> All right, well, I'll pass it off to you to take us home. Sure, yeah, I don't think this one's going to take too long. Because uh, it's it's one of my, my lighthearted pick for the week, I guess. So it's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from 1969, uh, which is 
in the time of the revisionist Western. And the point I want to talk about is when Butch is being challenged as a, as the leader of the hole in the wall game by Crud, what is his name? Oh, I don't remember his name now. I had it. Anyway, <laughs> he's he's being challenged by the by the big oh Logan, I think is his name. By the one of the big bigger strong brutish men in the in the gang mm-hmm. and so he's going to challenge his leadership and with a fight he's basically saying like he even says guns are, are is it guns or is it knives and he's going to challenge butch cassidy to this fight and the great thing about about this uh moment is how butch cassidy wins the fight because he's basically, you know, he's he's astounded, first of all, that somebody actually challenges his leadership. <laughs> and there's a great line where, where one of the guys says, yeah, but but Butch, you said that any of us can challenge your leadership at any time. And he says, that's because I thought none of you would do it. Because <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> Paul Newman is just, I just love him in this role. I just, I just think he's mm-hmm. so charismatic as Butch Cassidy. And so, of course, he says, they're going to do a knife fight. And so he says, well, before we start, we're going to have to talk about the rules. And then the big guy is like, rules? There's no rules in a knife fight. So then Paul Newman winds up, kicks him in the balls and says, okay, if there's no rules, let's get this fight started. <laughs> and then he says, somebody say one, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. And then he smacks him and knocks him out in one punch. I think it's, we talked about the idea of a revisionist Western. And I think this is a good example of, kind of attacking that idea of masculinity because you've got this big brutish um cowboy uh train robber and he's basically taken down by the wit and charm of paul newman who is not i would not say he's he would be your typical he's definitely not your typical john wayne cowboy type Mm -hmm. not by a long shot He's his leader because he's charismatic, because people like him, and because he's smart, right? And he's he keeps he's uh, sneaky, he's conniving in a way, but he's all he does it in a, but he's also just a likable guy, and that's where his leadership comes in. And I like the fact that he completely won this by cheating, and everybody was okay with it afterwards. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, I just I that's one scene that always sticks with me, and one of the just one of the things i love about this about this movie are those hilarious moments like that well it's the second time you've chosen a george roy hill paul newman collaboration oh, for so. one of your moments <laughs> i guess so i forgot um, that Slapshot that's becoming to you what scorsese is becoming to me oh, in this show where it's like when in doubt eh, yeah, that's probably always got him um it's yeah i like the points you make about contextualizing this within the trend of revisionist westerns because in most ways, I'd argue Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid isn't really a revisionist Western. It's not really interested in like pulling down the ideals of American expansion or enterprise or the American dream in the way that something even like Once Upon a Time in the West is. Right. But at the same time, it is at least altering its image. It's of a rugged, masculine cowboy, and it's certainly pulling away from like the singing cowboy, you know, list of morals and does right. good deeds and doesn't, you know, like. This character, like, he's charming and he's handsome, but he is kind of a scoundrel, and that's the appeal of him. So it hits a good balance of um, distinguishing itself from the tradition of Westerns while at the same time not being 
so challenging that it can't also be a massive popular hit with general audiences, which it certainly was. Um, Probably my favorite George Roy Hill film, although it's been a bit since I've seen it, so I don't know if I would still feel that way, but I certainly enjoyed it a lot when I saw it. Um, Yeah, it's a really good pick. It's one that, like, like a lot of comedic moments, it's hard to elaborate on too yeah. much because like yeah it's funny it is it is but i mean it does it does have purpose beyond just being funny for mm-hmm. one thing i think it really does a good job of establishing the bond between butch and sundance because butch is basically like right before that he's like you know him him he knows that sundance kid is on his side no matter what happens and mm-hmm. he even says uh the one guy who's challenging says um sundance if when it's done and he's dead, you're still welcome to join us. And then Paul Newman says to him, yeah, so if it's over and I'm dead, shoot him. <laughs> and and uh, Robert Redford's like, mm-hmm, <laughs> will do. <laughs> so, yeah, it, so it does a good stuff. job of just establishing their friendship. It does a good job of establishing the kind of leadership that Butch Cassidy has. Even though the gang isn't, like, it's not really about the gang. No, the gang it's itself about... goes away pretty quickly, but... Yeah, I don't even remember anything about the gang other than that scene, really. I, I know they do other stuff, but that's the centerpiece. It's really about the men, and to a much lesser extent, Catherine Ross. Yeah. But really the men. It is, yeah. <laughs> cool. The ultimate bromance. Yeah, I probably should. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> to the point that you almost wonder why Catherine Ross is even there. Yeah. <laughs> like, is she just there so we can say this is a hetero story? Because I don't know if it really is, but... You know, that was the 60s, I guess. Yep. Good pick, though. Good collection of uh, movies between the two of us. We got the Radical and we got the sort of big Hollywood uh, spectacles. So And Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston, the greatest <laughs> actor. I don't know how he did it, man. Like, he's got one note, but I guess he plays it pretty he well. <laughs> Good old Chuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, surprised we didn't talk about Dr. Zaius's greatest cultural influence, which is, of course, the musical. Uh, <laughs> I wondered if you'd bring that up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, as soon as you mentioned yeah. <laughs> such a great villain, I thought of his greatest villainous line. I think you're late. Uh, I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're all so lazy. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, Simpsons. Come for more Simpsons references. Yeah. Okay, so thanks for coming back to us all the way back to the 60s. Um, let us know what your favorite movies from this time period are. Do you like the picks that we had? Do you, are there other scenes that you like better? Other movies that you want us, that you would talk about if you were in our place? On the show? Yeah, so give us a, give us a ring at cinema underscore seconds at Twitter or cinema in seconds at Gmail. Seriously, somebody email me. I haven't gotten any emails. <laughs> <laughs> We're yearning for attention. Yeah. Talk to us. Tell us anything. Yeah. Recipe for some soup. We don't care. <laughs> we'll talk about it on the show. There you go. Okay, so, um, yeah, I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>